1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Edin Haidarpasic about his recent book, Who's Bosnia? Nationalism and Political Imagination in the Balkans, 1840 to 1914, published by Cornell University Press. Welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Edin.
0: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: And um, I found your book really fascinating, not least because it seems like everyone wanted Bosnia in the late 19th century. I had not realized it was such popular territory. So Serbit, Serbian and Croatian nationalists, Ottoman, Habsburg, Muslim, and Yugoslav movements all wanted to stake claim um, to this territory and to the people living there. But at the same time, they felt frustration with the Bosnian peasants for not living up to and political imaginations. And Edin makes a number of arguments about how we understand nationalism and political movements in contested spaces, many of which we will talk about in more detail in this interview. But before we dive into the book, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in being a historian and in studying the Balkans.
0: Yeah, thank you. And thanks for that uh, nice summary of the book. You know, it's interesting, this question of how I came to it uh, as I was thinking about that, I realized uh, that actually for a long time, I avoided writing about nationalism as a topic. I uh, had an aversion to nationalist topics, and I think that's pretty common and uh, among people who grew up in Yugoslavia and lived through its dissolution in the 1990s. Uh, So I guess I should say that I uh, grew up in Sarajevo and, My family uh, left the city uh, in 1992 and then came uh, eventually to the United States. Uh, So growing up with uh, the dismembering of Yugoslavia and the war in Bosnia uh, obviously shaped my political consciousness and outlook, uh, but not in ways that directly led me to the book. I think in some ways actually drew me me away from uh, these topics initially. So By the time that I came to the United States, uh, as a young adult, I was more more interested in languages, uh, had a brief, you know, went through a series of obsessions with like Latin or (laughs) classics and uh, James Joyce at some point and things like this. Um, But in any case, at some time in college, uh, that's when my turn to history began. I think more specifically uh, as a discipline, I realized that there is a lot more to history than simple recitation of facts or ver- their verification. That there are real debates and stakes and arguments and different ways of thinking about it, and that that was really useful for me. Uh, it, it's something that I continued to do at uh, the University of Michigan, where I did my doctoral work, and I had a, a, a deep interest in anthropology, and that really helped me uh, think of history in a different way, even though I was uh, in the history department. Uh, And that's when I, it was in graduate school that I realized that I want to do uh, something more with Yugoslav histories and with nationalism eventually. Uh, Even though at the beginning I uh, resisted this idea of of addressing nationalist topics, uh, I gradually began to realize that there is something new to say about this. And in fact, my initial impulse was, I think, quite common for the early 2000s or the 1990s, when there was this feeling that uh, there is a nationalism fatigue, that uh, everything that could be said about nationalism as a phenomenon has already been said in one way or another. Uh, I'm caricaturing a bit, but there's kind of a sense in, in among academia that uh, basically, Benedict Anderson has already said everything there is to say about uh, nations as imagined communities, and you can, you know, verify details and modifications. But why try? It, it seems like it was a phenomenon that was spent in the 1990s and early 2000s, and very few people, even historians, wanted to study it. There was a turn to uh, non-national phenomena, national indifference, which I, I find incredibly valuable and fascinating. And, and myself, I, I try to do that kind of running away from nationalist studies. Uh, I studied different communal relations in Ottoman Bosnia, but, and this is getting into the book now, uh, I realized that we as scholars needed to face the problem of nationalism uh, more directly. And I think on one hand, this notion of nationalism fatigue that I mentioned, it's actually quite superficial. Uh, and, and I mean by that there's, this phenomenon that everything's already been said doesn't ask new questions about it. There's always already a kind of conclusion that this is a, a topic that shouldn't or that could be addressed in, in deeper detail because already it has been spent. Um, and, and what really tipped the scales for me is, is when I started to uh, run across materials in the archives and come up with questions that I had no obvious answer to. Uh, when I turned to existing explanations, that's when I started to really go into uh, the, the phenomenon of nationalism. And Bosnia seemed like an ideal place to do that. Uh, it was a province that uh, had been since the late medieval period ruled by the Ottoman Empire uh, until 1878 uh, after a series of peasant uprisings uh, in 1878 to 1875, uh, it it's, uh, was decided at the Congress of Berlin that, uh, among other clauses of that treaty, that Bosnia should be uh, not ruled by uh, the Ottoman Empire anymore, but instead by uh, Austria-Hungary or the Habsburg Empire. Uh, at the same time, it was contested by, by uh, Serbian nationalists based largely around Belgrade, Uh which is by then an independent small state uh also by croatian nationalists often based in, in croatia uh so bosnia is contested first and foremost by bosnians themselves i mentioned those peasant uprisings that, that that there's a long tradition of that and a kind of uh sequence of uprisings throughout the 19th century but there's also international contestations imperial rivalries and the nationalist Contestations, And that's what seemed to me so uh, interesting to study one place that, that uh, connects to different levels of history on a regional and transnational and, and transimperial level on a number of ways. And, and it seemed to me like the perfect place to study for this proliferation of nationalist forms and, and the compulsion that they exercise on nationalists.
1: Yeah. And you actually frame your research as exploring what you call nation compulsion. So can you define that term for us and also explain why you think that or why you argue that nationalism was a productive, open-ended force, even in the face of seeming failures to achieve the nationalist goals?
0: So I think maybe the best way to uh, answer that question and to, to explain uh, what I mean by the proliferation and compulsion of nationalist forms is to uh, start with and and, and and thereby uh, explaining its uh, open-ended nature, I think it would help to start with what I uh, see as a tacit understandings sort or of tacit frameworks for understanding nationalism. So uh, most histories of nationalism uh, narrate how certain elites try to spread their patriotic programs among target populations. Uh, these might be certain populations within or outside of existing state boundaries and so on. Uh and in western Europe perhaps the most famous accounts uh of that nature is uh Eugene Weber's classic uh, peasants into frenchmen and the title really sums up the story there or in eastern Europe there's Miroslav Kroch's uh ABC stages of uh, national development you know, from elites to populations to mass movements. Uh and of course these models have been criticized, but what I became interested in is that uh, all of these, even the critiques, uh, have a certain uh, teleology built into them. They preserve the focus on the final outcome of nationalization, so that the story usually ends with some sense of stability, you know, either with Frenchmen or Serbs or Czechs or some other nationals clearly established, or with failures, like Yugoslavia obvious to us in hindsight, Uh, And what I was reading about nationalist works in the archives are uh, giving a very different sense of nationalist politics. So when I read what Croatian, Serbian, um, Ottoman, or Habsburg activists were doing, I was struck by how nationalist convictions and developments were far more dynamic and open-ended. I was struck by certain recurring themes that uh, seemed to have been settled or uh, uh, claim to have been resolved, uh, to have been reopened or constantly under debate. And and I was struck by the sense that nationalists in and around Bosnia constantly describe their projects as, on, as being on the edge of uh, full completion, but at the same time, hopelessly incomplete, uh, frustrating and impossible, which only inspire them to develop more projects for a more complete nationalization. So that's when I began to realize that maybe uh, it's better to treat uh, nationalism not as a finite phenomenon that ends with an establishment of an independent state or, you know, codification of a language or which are major achievements to be sure, but that there is more to explain. Uh, how nationalist activists themselves conduct their work, and what what drives them, and what motivates these these nationalist projects. So that's when I began to wonder: Could we structure uh, analysis of nationalism in ways that did not reinforce this teleological view on the supposed end point of nationalist development? Uh, is there such a a thing like the end point of nationalism? Uh, what happens when we approach nationalist works in terms of open-ended processes uh, and not complete aims or in terms of uh, the compulsion uh, that, that nationalist forms exercise. So when I talk about compulsion, I don't mean it any in, in any pathological sense, but instead I talk about certain uh, themes that and, and sites and practices that seem to be recurring and always under debate uh, in nationalist work. So things like, the importance of national suffering, uh, even when there are national cataclysms, uh, clear disasters that happen, uh, that may have been happening in the recent or the far past, that this becomes a very important site that that is preserved in national memory and in national practice in, in everyday life. Uh, so things like suffering, uh, youth becomes a, a, another kind of constant. Uh, compulsion to talk about youth and the future of the nation Uh, and also of course the people uh, itself the category of defining what's uh, a folk or who the people are uh, is something that doesn't have a clear or finite answer and that's precisely what works in its favor from the point of of, uh, nationalist activism is that It's always open for uh, intervention, for debates. It's it's, it's an endless topic uh, and an endless process. And and that's precisely that exercise is that addiction, a kind of compulsion to complete it, even though people know that it's not there.
1: Mm -hmm. And we are going to talk about suffering and youth a little later in the interview, but let's start at um, where you start at the beginning of the book, with Vuk Karadzic, and he was a linguistic reformer and philologist who supposedly discovered Bosnia and Herzegovina. And even though he never actually traveled to these regions, his work laid the groundwork for what you call ethnographic populism that sought to search out the core of the people in the South Slav lands. So can you tell us more about Vuk and his work um, as he was popularly known at the time?
0: Yes, exactly. That that takes us. uh, That that's uh, really the subject uh, of of chapter one. But uh, you're absolutely right. It sets up certain uh, ideas that come back throughout the book, uh, like ethnographic populism. And in in fact, I would say that Vuk uh, Karadzic, uh, the the, uh, the ethnographer that you mentioned, is important to the book in two ways. He provides an example of. Uh, ethnographic populism in the 19th century uh, but echoing well into the 20th and and to this day and the other is that his work exposes these relations of othering or alterity uh, especially around uh, Muslim Bosnian Muslim population uh, in Bosnia which he sees in deeply ambivalent ways both as brothers is through language and others. So uh, let me go through those two ideas, ethnographic populism and, and other uh, one by one. So first with ethnographic populism. Uh, Vuk, as you mentioned, was really, really famous in his day. Uh, he lives uh, and, and works really in the first half of the 19th century, uh, dies sometime in the 1860s. Uh, and uh, he's a towering figure, not just in Yugoslav histories, uh, In Belgrade, there's a square and statues of him throughout, or used to be throughout, uh, former Yugoslavia. Uh, But he's more broadly famous in this kind of romantic awakening movements uh, across Europe, uh, not just in Eastern Europe, in the Balkans, but uh, Brothers Grimm celebrate him, uh, learn the Serbian language uh, through him. Ranke, uh, Leopold von Ranke uh, consults him for his books on the Serbian uprising. Uh, he, Vuk is awarded honorary doctorates by the most prestigious universities in Germany and Russia. His works are translated into English and French and so on. Uh, this is all in the first half of the 19th century. And much of that fame rests, um, on his accomplishments in the field of linguistics and in folklore. So, uh, he is, uh, famously the father of the Serbian language. He standardized, uh, the, the Serbian grammar. Uh, including things like spelling, wrote the first uh, Serbian modern Serbian dictionary, and uh, he, in in doing all these things and collecting folklore, uh, he claimed that Herzegovina, in particular, but Herzegovina and Bosnia, which are the two territories in modern day uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, he claimed that Herzegovina, in particular, held the purest language and folklore in all the South Slavic regions from roughly. What is today, Slovenia down to Montenegro and as far south as uh, Macedonia. That's the area that he claimed all spoke a version or different dialects of Serbian. And he said, yes, there are many different dialectical differences, but the purest form that we should base our national language on is located uh, in Herzegovina. That's where the language among the peasants, of course, has been uh, preserved that feeds into this romantic myth of the pure, you know, remote, uh, unspoiled peasantry of you know this kind of romantic myth, uh, and as you mentioned, the, he, he promotes this, that the Herzegovinian, the so-called Herzegovinian dialect, does become the standard for a joint Serbo-Croatian language by 1850 uh, with the Zagreb Agreement in 1850, and. What's interesting about Vuk is that he never quite goes to Herzegovina or Bosnia. Uh, He he claims a lineage from this region uh, through his uh, family, which does come from a border area between Montenegro and modern-day Herzegovina. Uh, But he's born and raised in Serbia. He, in fact, spends most of his life in Vienna, collecting this folklore through some fieldwork, but also through visitors to uh, Vienna, and through publishing uh, and, and what he really upholds uh, and that's why he's important for that first part of, of my answer, ethnographic populism, his, his own journey uh, is really important. His biography is really important in illustrating how one could become a patriot because Vuk is, comes from humble backgrounds from uh, a, a, a Serbian village and, uh, and goes on to Vienna to become the leading philologist of his era. Now, that itself, that kind of narrative arc from peasant to ethnographer uh, is something that a lot of people will try to replicate and say, that's what uh, we should be doing is going into the people, going uh, into the folk to learn its ways, to learn its customs, to learn its folklore, and of course, as Book's own example of Herzegovina suggests, that's an unreachable goal. Uh, many people may go into the folk, uh, may go into the people, uh, it, but always leave that work unfinished and open-ended, because it, it, the burden then returns for you to complete that work, to go back and get more sayings, more proverbs, new words. Uh, so, what what he does establish is a is a kind of really uh, both both a, a, a model of self-fashioning of himself as an ethnographer and as a kind of a, a populist so that he, in a quite typical uh, romantic gesture, says, you know, l- the, all these learned academies are so far removed from the real people, from the peasants, and they speak in words that are not understood plainly by ordinary folk uh, so that there's a kind of condescension to uh, the learned, aristocracy especially. But then he says, we also need a new science, a science of the people, and that's ethnography. And, and everyone can do that. Everyone can collect proverbs. Essentially, everyone can learn folk poems, epics, and and so on. So that's the ethnographic populism that becomes really important and is later imitated and adopted in certain ways by the Habsburg Empire itself uh, to promote uh, a rival claim to Bosnia by collecting folklore, for example, from Bosnian Muslims. Hmm. And that's when I want to mention this uh, as just as a second part, because that's the other kind of running thread through the book. Vuk, when he talks about Bosnia and Herzegovina as being the lands of the purest language and folklore, he quite consciously and explicitly says uh that this is a language that's spoken by South Slavs of all three religions Orthodox, Catholics, and Muslims. Uh he, in a typical gesture, again of, of uh early nineteenth century nationalism leaves out Jews uh and Roma uh or other uh or religious or ethnic groups, but he says these are the three core religions that speak the same language, which he calls Serbian. And he says even Muslims who speak uh, a, a language that has absorbed a lot of Turkish words, in fact, they speak a, a very pure form of Serbian. Uh, that They're brothers, on the one hand, because their epic poems are identical to those of the uh, Orthodox and Catholic uh, groups as well. And on the other hand, Vuk is also engaged in an anti-Ottoman, anti-Turkish crusade. Uh, from an, his upbringing, uh, he, he uh, takes part early on in the Serbian uprising uh, before ending up in Vienna. He is very staunchly anti-Ottoman, anti-Turkish in many of his writings. And his proverbs uh, are littered with all sorts of... Uh, Anti-Turkish sentiments about Turks being devious, murderly, uh, and, and uh, hostile to Christians, oppressive, uh, and so on. But in his, in, if you look at his dictionary, and that's when I introduced this term um, "br other." So it's brother, but with "br" in parenthesis, so that you can read it both as brother or other. Uh, In his dictionary, he collects all these Serbian words that he says are Serbian, but some are clearly of Turkish origin, and he says we will replace those later, but in the meantime, there is no replacement for them, even though they're Turkish, so we will mark them with an asterisk, uh, these Turkish words, and at some future point, we will replace them uh, because we really should have a pure Serbian language. Uh, So so you see this very ambivalent attitudes uh, on the one hand, a rejection uh, exclusion, but on the other hand, a practical inclusion. Uh, In fact, uh, Ruk Karadzic's own last name, Karadzic, uh, if you look up the word kara in his dictionary, it also holds an asterisk because it's derived from the Turkish word for black. So in a way he has marked his own, heritage uh, you know, for future erasure. And that's what I found so fascinating and, and had gone uh, really unremarked in, in most of these uh, accounts, which really kind of come down uh, in a dichotomy. It's either us or them. Lines of exclusion are drawn pretty in pretty firm ways and hard ways. Uh, that's not at all what I found in, in, in my research. And that uh, feeds into this open-ended uh, feeling of, of nationalist activism in which the brother can be read both ways a, a, as a co-patriot, as a co-national, and a, as as a figure of insurmountable difference.
1: And it's very convenient, fortunately, that brother and other in English actually um, yes come together. It <laughs> makes me curious. I need. I want to go look up the etymologies of those words, but um, not right now because uh, we have another uh, topic to talk about. And I did find the chapter, The Land of Suffering, in your analysis of what you called aggrieved nationalist subjectivity, particularly compelling. And activists were crafting a narrative of Slavs suffering under the Ottoman yoke. But why were these activists so heavily invested in the sad Bosnian motif?
0: Yeah, um, that that's... So- so in, in, in the book is structured in a way to emphasize these uh certain themes uh that became sites of nationalists uh compulsion and proliferation of discourses so the first one that i talked about is this theme of the people so i call the first chapter is called the, the land of the people and the second is the land of suffering and introduces a, a number of these paradoxes uh in 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 the development of nationalism. So while on the one hand, Vuk is uh, spreading this idea of Bosnia being the land of the people, of the purest folk, where the purest language is spoken, at the exact same time uh, in the early 19th century and continuing well up until 1914 uh, and echoing into the 20th century, uh, there is a widespread idea among Serbian, Croatian, Activists, and it becomes uh, later on adopted uh, elsewhere across Europe, that Bosnia is a land of really deep uh, suffering. Uh, in the first place, the suffering of uh, Christians in the Ottoman Empire, in Ottoman Bosnia in particular, at the hands of the Turks, who ruled the land uh, and inflict suffering uh, uh, upon its Christian uh, raya. The raya being the term for uh, really subjects of, of the Ottoman Empire, but it has because most of the subjects uh, in Ottoman Balkans are Christian, it becomes synonymous with the the, the uh, with with by mean, with meaning Ottoman Christians themselves. So that the suffering of uh, the raya becomes a really. Amazing concern uh, for poets, diplomats, uh, painters, uh, budding activists, budding politicians across the Balkans. How does this work in in practice? Uh, Well, in the first place, what surprised me about all of this is that I kept coming across in the archives and as I was reading books and, and newspapers Uh, of the early 19th and late 19th century, I kept coming across uh, these poems and uh, essays that had all these allusions and word plays on uh, the title Sad Bosnia. Uh, And it never had occurred to me that this was a thing in the 19th century. Uh, And I have to say, taking notes by hand, Uh, In the archives or while reading newspapers was really helpful because, (laughs) you know, by the time you write like sad Bosnia in a number of different ways, you realize what's going on here. Why are people so invested in these discourses of sadness? Uh, And just as a a side note, I'm a huge fan of of still taking notes by hand. I I think historians uh, are probably the last uh, <laughs> researchers who will give up uh, handwritten notes. Anyway, uh, Sad Bosnia, I, I came across these all these references, and I began to investigate when does this term begin to appear um, in the late 1830s, uh, really in 1839, and it's continuing through the 1840s and 50s and 60s, through poems that dwell uh, on the general sadness of this province, because uh, It's it's the only South Slavic province by that point that is perceived by activists in places like Belgrade and Zagreb to be unawakened and to still be uh, the last major province not to be liberated. So in the Habsburg Empire, uh, Croatian nationalists uh, or Illyrian nationalists, as they would call themselves in the early 19th century, uh, would look across the Sava river, separating Croatia from Bosnia and say, you know, our brothers are across that border, but there rules the Turk. Uh, Similarly to the east of Bosnia uh, in, in Serbia and Belgrade, people might, budding nationalists would look across the Drina river and say, well, look, you know, those are our brothers across those rivers and we can hear their cries. And what struck me about this is that, uh, often these poems would be written without, um, a clear ref point of reference. Uh, it's later there will be, uh, specific mentions of massacres and particular events. Uh, but what struck me is that this was a kind of generalized sadness of, of, uh, that, that, that set that to be a nationalist is to speak from a place of, uh, injury to your people. And that your people are aggrieved, uh, they're abused, they're oppressed uh, by the Turks of all people. That uh, this is a very important point in the early beginnings of this discourse is that it's, it's a violation of a, of a Christian, uh, otherwise civilized people, by an inhumane, brutal Turkish rule. Um, and the really key epic that summarizes these themes is the death of Smilka uh which is written in the 1840s by Ivan uh, Majuranić, a Croatian then poet who goes on to be a uh, Croatian governor by the 1870s in the Habsburg Empire. And really it's this epic that makes his uh, name as both a poet and a kind of Croatian patriot. Uh, What he does is uh, he writes a poem about a real historical event uh, in which a group of uh, Montenegrin Highlanders uh, killed a prominent Ottoman Bosnian uh, Muslim uh, landlord, uh, Ismail, Agacengic, Ismail Agacengic, uh, uh in Herzegovina on the border between Herzegovina and Montenegro, an event that happened to take place in 1840. Uh, seven years later, uh, he composes this poem, that takes this real historical event, but endows it with a kind of exalted air of suffering. Of uh, really lengthy scenes of uh, the landlord, who is depicted not only as a vicious, a greedy Turkish uh, overlord oppressing the Christian raya, but the, the the scenes dwell more on on the kind of soundscape of the sufferings. The the, the the cries, the silence of the scene as uh, the Raya and the, some of the captured Highlanders are impaled in very lengthy scenes uh, and punished, beaten, and so on. And this book, it, it becomes uh, a huge hit uh, of the 19th century. Uh, it's translated uh, into 30 languages by uh, the the middle of the uh, 20th century, including there are two translations in English. Uh, It's taught in gymnasia uh, all all across uh, the South Slavic-speaking world, in Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia as well. Uh, And it continues to be taught well after Ottoman rule ends. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's can... actually my next question uh, was that, you know, there's all of this horrors of the poor Christian Slavs under the Ottoman Muslim Turks. But then when it the transfer from Ottoman rule to Habsburg rule, the nationalists still are able to uh, figure out a way to frame this narrative of national suffering. So, yeah, continue on.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly uh, th- th- what I describe in the book is that uh, – The Ottoman rule ends in Bosnia in 1878. Uh, Austria-Hungary occupies the province. Uh, Many of the Croatian nationalists are initially uh, pleased by this term of events, thinking that it will bring uh, Bosnia closer to Croatia uh, in the long run. Uh, Serbian nationalists are less enthused. But what what struck me uh, about this notion of suffering is that it doesn't go away with the end of of Ottoman rule. Uh, Nationalists continue to reprint and comment on, uh, Smilaga like for example. Uh, there are various debates by the late 19th century whether the epic is, uh, a forgery, whether it's a fantasy, uh, a kind of blown up, exaggerated event. Uh, and what's really surprised me when I looked into it is that the consensus was that, uh, and, and the word itself was used that fantasy is essential. To understanding history, uh, a real historical event, uh, fantasy being a, a kind of, uh, even in German, a term that connotes more uh, the capacity for imagination and, and recreation of an event, to to endow an event with real significance rather than just verification of event of, of facts. So that impalement scene, for example. Uh, that was so vividly described um, in uh, the epic. It turns out that uh, Ivan majorinch 's son uh, is asked to basically vindicate his father, and who's dead by then, uh, and say that this was real. And he writes to a number of ethnographers, figures in Bosnia, who write back and say that really did not happen. Uh, that the, the impalement is not the kind of uh, s- uh, it, it was not an event that would have really transpired. It, nobody remembers this, uh, but it's inscribed in national memory. And it is, in some sense, more accurate uh, than what actually happened, because it conveys the point more clearly. And that's what the point of fantasy, is to convey the essence, the gist of history, and not the mere dry facts. And that's what was so important uh, to, to nationalists and, and, and the idea of Uh, fantasy, being able to convey the essence of suffering, which continues in the Austro-Hungarian period uh, conveniently. uh, There is a switch that happens gradually, but uh, pretty clearly by the beginning of the 20th century, in which the old Turkish time, which was once decried as the most inhumane rule that uh, humanity has ever seen, uh, is quickly replaced in a a matter of decades by the notion that uh, Austrian rule may be superficially less violent. In fact, it isn't outwardly violent, but it's stifling. Uh, In the words of one poet, he writes, uh, the Turks punished the body, the Austrians punished the soul. Uh, So that there is always an injury, even if it's spiritual uh, and removed from uh, a physical injury, but that the national spirit speaks from a place of grievance. Uh, and that's when I talk about the, these examples of uh, Petar Kocic and his uh, reimagining of the Bosnian peasant, not as someone who speaks purely, but in, in, as in the case of Vuk, but as someone who is downtrodden, who can barely speak, and who, who who's so deadened and muted by history that nationalists must speak up for him and for the millions of others. Silent, suffering souls, uh, and and suffering in that way. I realized uh, is really a very unexplored topic in the history of nationalism. Uh, it's usually a topic that philosophers uh, have written about, from Foucault to Vina Das to uh, Susan Zontag. But you would historians, particularly of nationalism, have often dismissed these accounts. Uh, either as a, a kind of exaggerations, as narratives of exaggerated victimization, divorce from reality, or they'll treat them with some empathy and say, well, this is, really reflects some kind of real pain. Uh, but in either case, it tends to simply abandon this huge cultural production that includes not just epic poems that I talk about, but uh, painting, painting, uh, diplomatic debates over uh, the value of the suffering. Um, it even filters into discourses of people like John Stuart Mill, uh, an absolutely central figure uh, in, in uh, the history of modern liberalism, who writes about this irresolvable conflict between uh the the, the Muslim Turks and uh, the the oppressed Christian Raya. So suffering to me then became a kind of way to link nationalist causes with the broader web of uh, the rise of liberal uh, humanitarianism in some sense in the 19th century.
1: Hmm. And the next kind of big thing to happen um, was the establishment of the Serbian state. So how did that new state um, within the, South, lands of the South Slavs, transformed the activists' perception of their work? And why were secrecy, insurrection, and the expansion of potential co-nationals considered the key strategies?
0: So the book moves in, in these thematic ways, but also uh, chronologically, uh, obviously, throughout the, the 19th century. And you're quite right to emphasize the rise of the Serbian state, uh, which I had already mentioned uh, earlier as being an important focal point. Uh, but really, in, in chapter three, I take up the challenge of looking at why, uh, why the Serbian state becomes a magnet for national activism in the Balkans in the 19th century, and what kind of national uh, activist practices were developed uh, in this state uh, over the course of the long 19th century up until 1914. Uh, and initially, uh, because Serbia is uh, before 1878 still technically uh, autonomous, not independent. It's an autonomous principality. Uh, m- much of its uh, much of its ideas of expansion to nearby neighboring areas uh, have to be uh, held under wraps. So the first major plan for Serbia's expansion is the famous Nacertania uh, or simply called plan um, by Ilya Garashanin uh, in the 1840s. This is really the era of such plans of uh, expansionists uh, or irredentist uh, nationalism in the 19th century. We have the Megali there in Greece as well, uh, similarly dreaming of future expansion, but, For reasons of diplomacy and to prepare for future expansion, Serbia cannot outwardly uh, appear as a threatening state that is going to attack either the Ottoman Empire or the Austrian Empire, so that essentially many of these plans have to be held in secret uh, there, there should be a network of agents ready to spread the word uh, about Serbia's uh, glory and and progressive role in liberating uh, peoples around the Balkans, and then those people, those peasants, will rise up, um, and that's where the insurrection comes in. Uh, the problem with this, with all this planning, and the, from the eighteen forties really up to the eighteen seventies, up to uh, eighteen seventy eight. Is could be called the golden age of these plans for insurrection. Uh, so what I found in the the archives and in Belgrade, for example, is uh, dozens and dozens of uh, agents or activists' plans for an insurrection in Bosnia. That uh, national activists, both local ones and ones from outside from Serbia and Croatia, would come in and tell the peasants to rise up and overthrow their Ottoman overlords, uh, that doesn't quite happen. And in fact, the mission is quickly revealed to be not one of insurrection, uh, but one of instruction. And and that's the key, uh, I think to, to this uh, dynamic is that the relationship is always structured uh, as being that of a conscious uh, national Patriot, who speaks to an unawakened or partly conscious or liable, you know, a, 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 a very pliable co-national that is not aware of his role uh, in the future of the nation. So that even the, the, the idea of instructing them to to rise up becomes one of a, a relationship of uh, essentially a tu- tutoring uh, and, and, and a, a form of uh, instruction that is incomplete Completable, it becomes a kind of uh, a gap in which nationalists always are disappointed in their co-nationals who can never quite live up to the ideal that they are supposed to fulfill. So, what I really kind of wanted to show in that chapter is that disappointment uh, is not a and, and failure are not by you know kind of accidents and byproducts in. in uh, the development of nationalist ideologies, but are actually quite central, and and that's what's important to grasp about them is that this appointment uh, is one of these driving forces, a, a compulsion of sorts, that uh, compels these nationalists to always treat their co-nationals as uh, somewhat lacking in uh, the true patriotism, as as never living up. To the ideal of what it is to be a true national,
1: yeah, and that ability to hold these contradictory beliefs is actually one of the very interesting um, parts of the book, or you know, arguments within the book. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning uh, the youth and nationalist activists in the late nineteenth century were trying to figure out if and how to mobilize youth as a political force. So, how did they um, view youth? and nationalist activity directed toward the Bosnians, and also talk about this intersection of youth heroism and violence in the Balkans.
0: Yeah, so this this disappointment that nationalists feel uh, towards their supposed co-nationals is... Often apparent in case, especially uh, in, in in their treatment of the next generation of patriots, namely children and youth, who are a constant obsession of nationalist work, uh, often for quite generic reasons, I mean you know the future of the nation our our youth uh, could be pretty much the slogan of every nationalist movement that i've encountered, uh, but I think the the problematic is a bit more uh, is a bit more interesting than, than, than just that kind of generic notion. Uh, what I found interesting about, uh, these youth movements is that there is a kind of uptick in, uh, organization of youth societies, of societies that call themselves young, uh, Across Europe in the nineteenth century and in the Balkans in the late nineteenth century that is quite specifically modern and is not simply just a kind of reflection of, of this generational shift, this kind of uh, never completed horizon that that youth are supposed to fulfill, but it signals a, a kind of shifting attention to uh, to youth as as a as a potential element that could break apart certain dilemmas. That, and these contradictions that you mentioned that these nationalists have to live with, uh, in the 19th century, that one of the ways of resolving them is to displace them and to, or or to rather project them onto the youth as being the element that will, uh, be able to resolve, uh, so the tension between, uh, suffering and liberation, uh, between, uh, being a proud people and being humiliated uh, between being a small state and between being in their own minds, perceived as a great people, uh, a massive uh, group and so on that that, the next generation, uh, by the late 19th century, the consensus is kind of reached that uh, the next generation will be able to, to break through with all of this and actually realize uh, a a future that we can only dream of Uh, and what I became interested in in this is how this tied into one particularly famous formation of this youth, of these youth discourses, and that would be the Young Bosnian movement uh, in the early twentieth century, that is often linked with the Sarajevo assassination, which itself becomes a point of rupture uh, that seemingly fulfills uh, with the end of. The First World War, at least some of these kind of dreams of national unification, at least for some, not for others, of course. Uh, And what I became interested in, in, in looking at this is that I, I realized that many of these national, national activists were writing about the future in ways that uh, were really difficult to simply dismiss as anachronisms, that somehow we read 1914 back into these histories that all of this kind of culminates in a great eruption uh, in, with World War I. But what I found interesting is that there was a sense that uh, among nationalist activists, especially in Serbia and Croatia uh, in the early 20th century, that the Bosnian youth uh, are somehow able to capitalize on and condense the suffering of their people and express it in a particularly uh, condensed Heroic form that will revolutionize the world. So one of the actors writes about, you know, we are living. He's writing this in 1912. We are living in anticipation of year X, uh, a year that is unlike any other years. And for us, it's easy to read that as 1914. But of course, he did not know in 1912 what was going to happen in 1914. And that's that 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 tension uh, and and that kind of anticipatory. horizon of expectation to use uh, Reinhard Koselleck's work, uh, work uh, here to, that, that made youth such a potent site of nationalist activism, particularly in Bosnia.
1: And another thing you mentioned at the beginning, so I'm actually I'm actually feeling kind of good because um, I clearly picked the key topics to ask my questions on. Um, was the fact that the habsburgs published seemingly national newspapers and materials such as the journal nada and i was really surprised that by this response of the habsburg empire to nationalist activism in serbia and the south lands more generally so tell us more about that
0: yes so um just to, as you said to kind of tie these uh themes together uh this Expectation of uh, a great upheaval in Bosnia is not unnoticed. In fact, it it becomes a great source of concern for the actual uh, administration, for the actual government of Bosnia, which is, after 1878, uh, a provincial Habsburg administration, uh, which is looking at Bosnia as a province that... Uh, has been, on the one hand, uh, and they use this word with quite positive connotations in their eyes, pacified. Uh, So a land that used to be full of peasant unrest uh, in the Ottoman years has been largely uh, put under control. Uh, It's a formerly, quote unquote, oriental land uh, uh, with a very large Muslim population that is now uh, led into a brighter future. Uh, supposedly, under the Habsburg ages, under the the, the protection of the Habsburg monarchy. Uh, but the problem with all of this is that they, the Habsburg administration looks also at Bosnia and sees quite clearly that uh, Serbian nationalists are obsessing over the suffering and the the, the uh, oppressed people of Bosnia, uh, so that they're quite disconcerted that what the habsburg see as an era of modernization progress uh upheaval uh, 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 uplift in in bosnia uh is being subverted by these national activists who are claiming that no 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 in fact what is happening here is that the habsburgs are still oppressing the people the people can't speak the people can't breathe it's it's a stifling rule and 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 the youth in themselves are, are are particularly seen as dangerous so, what the their government does is, on the one hand, they strictly monitor, uh, these nationalist, uh, formations, especially societies. Uh, they do not want nationalist teachers in schools, though invariably some do end up in schools. Uh, they don't want incendiary writings, uh, to be spread in Bosnia. So, there is a fair bit of, uh, if not of uh, censorship, uh, but in, in ways that, uh, sort of act sometimes indirectly or pressure certain journals not to be too incendiary. So on the one hand, the Habsburgs are really concerned that uh, these discourses of national sufferings are, are, are damaging to the Habsburg reputation. Uh, they are under, they, they, in fact, uh, take up uh, a campaign to, to provide a, a, a A picture of a better Bosnia, a Bosnia that is is, that is a land that is first of all not suffering, but it's a land that is also charming, uh, idyllic. Uh, Its uh, geography, its folklore are uh, supposedly spectacular, uh, so that the government actually uses the Habsburg government starts to use the very same. Uh, parts of the very same tropes of nationalist discourses to treat Bosnia as an unawakened land that has now been awakened by the modern Habsburg spirit and is flourishing as a result. So Bosnia is, is seen as a kind of a sleeping beauty province, uh, formerly Oriental, but now being able to fulfill itself. Uh, the journal that you mentioned, Nada, is sponsored by the Habsburg government uh, up until the early 20th century and it's lavishly illustrated uh, with photographs paintings uh poems about bosnian folklore uh ethnographers are uh handsomely subsidized to collect bosnian muslim folklore and celebrated as a habsburg achievement uh, that that belongs to the people and they actually quite explicitly say uh this is what Vuk never did uh this he never managed to go to bosnia and herzegovina he, and he himself said that this is the land of purest folklore, and who is able to make this folklore known to the, or the world? It's the Habsburg government. Far from oppressing nationalism, we're actually fulfilling uh, its its true needs, its true mission. Uh, so, to me, this was important. Uh, that this kind of imperial adaptation uh, of nationalist forms was really important part of the book to explain the proliferation of nationalist forms. Uh, I think it's quite common, especially among historians of Eastern Europe, but I think elsewhere in the Middle East as well, uh, to treat and automatically assume that nationalism and empire stand on opposite poles, that's of, of, of politics, that it's nationalist movements that are trying to break away from empire, which are dynastic uh Essentially, early modern legacies somehow outdated, and uh, by the beginning of the twentieth century, and the picture is quite the opposite. In fact, uh, nationalist and imperial uh, forms of of politics uh, learn from each other over the form over the course of the nineteenth century. They uh, study how. Uh, each other's camps, even though they might see uh, them as opposites, but more more rivals. It's it seen more as a competition on the same field. So not as different versions of politics, but variations on the same form of modern politics. So that empires, particularly the Habsburg and the Ottoman Empire, I talk a bit about the Ottoman use, the Ottoman government's use of the of Vuk's standard. Uh, grammar, for example, in Bosnia. Uh, they're quite happy to adapt it. I see these as, a, as signs that these empires were, uh, first of all, not outdated early modern, uh, you know, vestiges, uh, or somehow ar- artifacts of a bygone age, but in fact, uh, quite uh, vital uh, political enterprises that were willing to learn and use new tricks. So the government will use a journal like nada. It will sponsor international exhibitions, including the exhibition in Paris, uh, visited by some over 50 million visitors the world expo in Paris, uh, where the Habsburg government establishes three pavilions, uh, one for Austria, one for Hungary and one for Bosnia. So the dual monarchy actually has three pavilions, one separately for Bosnia because it's a, a, it has a special status and it's the famous uh painter al Alphonse Muha uh, who provides this idyllic image that actually graces the cover of my book of Bosnia as a kind of land of pastoral idyllic uh untamed beauty
1: mm. and it is a beautiful cover, so good selection. Um, <laughs> And you begin the epilogue by acknowledging that any history of nationalism in Bosnia must deal with questions about current ethnic divisions and the violence of the 1990s in the former Yugoslavia. So how do you address those questions?
0: Well, I think first, the way I address uh, that question is by calling attention to the fact that there is an implicit expectation today that history of Bosnia must somehow be able to explain what happened in the 1990s? And the answer, I'm afraid, is that history uh, does not repeat itself. <laughs> uh, history works in ways that uh, don't add up in neat ways. So that while history can tell us something about uh, the reappearance of these Brothering, brothering relations in the 1990s, uh, I don't think that it can explain in a conclusive way uh, why violence in particular happens. In fact, that would be my argument, is to say that violence deserves to be a separate topic that isn't covered in this book, uh, but that I, I would have more to say in a different study uh, if I were to undertake it. But I think that by looking at uh, 19th century and early 20th century Bosnia uh, gives us a different sense of what's happening in the long term, what's happening in the long durée, uh, not just in the Balkans, but I think worldwide when we study nationalism. And the way I I, I sort of uh, structured some of the comparisons in, in the epilogue is uh, to say that there is an expectation not just that history helps explain the wars in the 1990s, but that there's a twin expectation that the wars of the 1990s, the ethnic cleansing, the genocide uh, in Bosnia were somehow the end of the story. And I think that's quite frankly wrong. Uh, History does not end uh, there. Uh, And in fact, nationalism and nationalist forms of politics Don't end with genocide or ethnic cleansing. That uh, somehow this expectation that if the boundaries, however violently, could be redrawn, and each people—Bosnian Muslims, Serbs, Croats, Albanians, whoever—got their uh, state—that would lead to some kind of settlement. Uh, I think that expectation does not quite understand what's at stake and. In history, and what's at stake with nationalism uh to me, that expectation that somehow if uh these boundaries can be uh redrawn however violently in in it's akin to that quite common um analogy of a puzzle that people are trying to put together that you have a very complex area with different communities allegiances. Uh, polities, and somehow that you can maybe fit the puzzle pieces and the colors, obviously, in solid areas, somehow that will lead to a, 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 a picture that might not be beautiful, but it will be a stable picture. So, And in fact, what I found fascinating is that uh, puzzles as a form of entertainment, the first puzzle, in fact, was a map of Europe with countries. Um, And there is this kind of, I I think, completist paradigm that I've been criticizing and addressing in my work that people expect uh, somehow violence in the 1990s is getting us, you know, it's deplorable, it's awful, but it's getting us closer to, quote unquote, resolving these issues. Uh, First of all, it it doesn't resolve them. That relationship that I mentioned at the beginning uh, between... Assimilation and uh, inclusion uh, on the one hand and exclusion, uh, violence, rejection on the other. It's a much more complex relationship that I try to capture in that ambivalent term, uh, an ambiguous term, be our other, a kind of uh, uh, endearing imperative uh, that that, that I coined there. Uh, And I think that that relationship reappears after the war after acts of genocide uh, it's not that now we know who's a brother and who's the other those questions are never settled and i would suggest and that's what i end the book with is that we should stop thinking of nation building in terms of uh, puzzle pieces the puzzle piece analogy is fundamentally flawed on a number of different ways if we do have a conception that is closer, it would be one of Tetris uh, where it's not, not the puzzle pieces of nationhood, but Tetris uh, which is a game that is built on a no win condition. Uh, You can align uh, certain units into a uniform row and there is a brief moment of satisfaction, but those rows then disappear and what you see on the screen is the jagged irregularities, the incomplete pieces that are driving you to fit more pieces together. And the the Tetris ends always being overwhelmed and restarted. And I think that's much closer uh, to getting us to realize that there is no end to nationalism. Uh, Violence can never be excused as kind of Deplorable, but necessary for settling political uh, disputes. But that these disputes are in in this way irresolvable, like Tetris.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's a very good analogy. I was in my mind envisioning playing Tetris, and how often <laughs> it did end with me just restarting the game. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I really appreciate you know the the that thoughtfulness and and what can history teach us about the present or what can it, you know, What what does it not teach us and what can it teach us? So, well, thank you very much for uh, being willing to do this interview and, and giving so much of your time truly since we had a false start and, and managed (laughs) to uh, reschedule and have another false start, but get going this time. So um, we um, really appreciate the opportunity to hear more about your book. And uh, I'd like to end by asking, you what what are you working on right now
0: uh right now i am still finishing up a few uh things related to uh that kind of came out as tales that uh, of my research from the 19th century so a few things on muslim education uh in the Balkans with Bosnia as an example, but I think that the problem of elementary school education, the so-called mektives is, is really an important one that I uh, had uh, wanted to address in, in broader ways as a kind of history of this idea of Muslim exceptionalism, uh, that's that Muslims constitute a a population that has to be addressed even in educational terms in different ways. And, and I think it has profound consequences for uh, histories of, of, Balkan societies and more generally European Muslim societies. Uh, the other is a, another article that I was have been working on for a while, but I realized that I never published and I should really dust that off uh, on Bosnian Franciscans and their position and so Catholicism in the Ottoman Empire. But really, the big next major major project uh, will take me into the interwar uh, period when I'm looking at. Uh, Looking at different, it's a a more transnational history that has to do with certain, let's say, groups or individuals uh, that end up uh, fostering new networks of both converts and existing Muslim groups in places that we don't normally connect. Uh, So there are certain uh, Yugoslav-born Muslim intellectuals that end up in Spain Uh, briefly before ending up in places like Paris and Berlin, uh, at the same time working with both indigenous Muslim populations, but also new converts to Islam in the interwar period. And it just struck me that this is a really fruitful way to address this kind of uh, question of rediscovery of Islam as both a European religion and as a kind of insurmountable other in the interwar period in interesting ways. uh, It's probably going to be a micro history of some sort. I'm not sure at this point, whether it's going to be several individuals or one individual story, but that's what I hope to be doing more of. If I get a research lead, it'll go faster. (laughs) We will, we shall see.
1: Well, good. Well, I look forward to that book coming to fruition at some point And I hope you'll keep the New Books Network in mind at that time. And maybe we can do another interview. Oh, certainly. Uh, But in the meantime, I also want to thank our listeners for joining us in this podcast. And we look forward to next month's conversation about a new book in East European Studies. So thank you, Eden.
0: Thank you for inviting me.